Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. With the goal of educating and empowering women, each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the As a Woman podcast. Today, I'm excited to talk to you about preparing for IVF. When you hear that you need IVF or you are planning to start IVF, it can be really overwhelming. And so I want to break down what it is that I think you need to know before that process begins. But before we begin, I want to talk about this week's fertility in the news. Newsweek published an article called Plastic Food Packaging Can Cause Hundreds of Chemicals That Cause Cancer and Fertility. This was published June the 7th, so it was last month. But the take-home message here is that they were investigating the wrappings of food, like the plastic packaging or the containers that your food comes in. They're actually reporting on a study that was published, and it was published in the Journal of Hazardous Materials in September. And this says implementing the European Union Chemical Strategy for Sustainability, the case of food contact chemicals of concern. Anyways, long name, but the point of this was that in Europe, so not here in America, but in Europe, they aimed at removing harmful chemicals from consumer products, including food contact. We know that food and what it comes in, what you cook it in, and how it's stored actually matters a lot. So some background material, we know that often cans can have, their lining can have BPA in it. We know that plastics, the plastic wrapping you put in the microwave or that just covers your food can have PFCs, perfluorinated chemicals, as can Teflon. And this was looking at some of the things we've been told that, well, your food has to be heated in it and cooked in it to be a problem. But what does it mean if your food is stored in it and does it actually get in your food? And that's what the study was looking at. So they use different databases to analyze this. But essentially, they're looking at the chemicals that are in the wrapping or the container. And they're also looking at the chemicals that are in the food. Because the message the public's been getting for a long time is, oh, these chemicals may be in the wrapping, like the plastic, but they're not getting in the food. So no worries. This study was actually looking at, well, are these chemicals getting into the food? And is that a problem? The food wrappings themselves had 388 individual chemicals which were of concern and 352 which were known to be carcinogenic or toxic to reproduction. There were also 22 known hormone or endocrine disrupting chemicals 
and 32 which were labeled to endanger your health because they accumulated inside the body. Further, not only are these chemicals in the packaging or the food container, they are, as you suspected, because we're talking about it inside the food. And this is in Europe, which has more regulations than we do here in America, if you're listening from here. So that's a huge concern. It's one thing that I talk about with all patients, that we cannot trust that the government is regulating the chemicals that are manufactured or placed into things. So just because you can buy it does not mean that it's safe. And so you need to be mindful about what your food is coming in, how you're cooking it, and what you're allowing heat to get on. We still are worried about heat the most because it allows transfer of the chemicals into the food easier. So if you're trying to get pregnant or just looking out for your general health, a big no-no is putting plastics in the dishwasher or in the microwave. Another one is cooking on Teflon because that can have some of those PFCs in it. And I want you to be really mindful about the chemicals that are in your world because this is something that you have to control. Also, I want you to be very mindful about the other things in your life. You can also go to the ewg.org environmental working group and they can help list out chemicals that are in beauty products and skin products. So that is another resource you can use if you're trying to rid your life of toxins, which we now know is a personal responsibility. Okay, let's dive into the episode. So preparing for IVF is a huge deal. When you find out you need IVF, it can cause a lot of emotions. I know this because every single day I'm talking about IVF, I'm looking people in the face, and I can see it can be really overwhelming. But it does not need to be, and I want to give you some tips, ways to frame things, what I want you to know, and maybe just some general perspective So if you're starting IVF, one of the first things we have to talk about is what is IVF? The way I like to think about IVF is we are manipulating what the body normally does in order to get a large number of eggs to grow forward. So if we think about the ovary, what I like to think of is if you imagine that there is a vault inside where all your eggs are kept. Inside that vault is all of them. Every month, a group of eggs comes out of the vault and the size of the group or the number of eggs, differs depending on how many are remaining. So if you're younger, you have more eggs coming out of the vault, and as you get older or have fewer eggs, fewer eggs come out. So every month, a group of eggs comes out. Let's use an average 30-year-old. We'll have around 20 eggs coming out of the vault. Each egg is microscopic, but it grows inside a small fluid-filled structure called a follicle. Brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH, And FSH works to get one follicle to grow. As that follicle grows, the egg matures, makes estrogen, you ovulate, and all the other eggs die. That's what happens normally. So in IVF, what we're actually trying to do, we put it as simple as possible, is get one month's group of eggs to grow. So instead of letting all of those eggs die, I want to get a whole group of them to grow forward. And then I'm going to take that group out of the body. I'm going to fertilize them with sperm and allow embryos to be made. Those embryos could be frozen, transferred, or tested for genetics, and they are usually now transferred in what's known as a frozen embryo transfer, or an FET. So most patients, not everybody, I want you to think about IVF being separate from FET. IVF, in vitro fertilization, 
that actually means fertilization in the glass or in the petri dish. That's the act of getting one month's group of eggs to grow, taking them out of the body, fertilizing in the lab, that's the IVF, growing them into embryos, and then plus minus genetic testing. And then FET is frozen embryo transfer, taking the embryos, warming one up, putting it back in the body. So I want you to separate the process of fertilization and embryo creation from an embryo transfer for the purposes of this talk. And in modern practice, that's how this goes for the vast majority of people now, because that helps us have the highest life birth rate. One of the biggest things to understand is that success of IVF is independent and individual, meaning you cannot compare yourself to your best friend. You're going to have different expectations. So understanding your expectations is something that's really important and something I want your doctor to talk to you about or you to ask. So if we think about this, the two factors that impact success, one is going to be your age, which you cannot change, but you can understand. And the other is going to be the number of eggs that you have available. Other things that are important are going to be sperm and egg quality. But let's just start with talking about how many eggs do we have? What are my expectations? And then what does it mean to have a set number of eggs? So when I think about this, what we can do is we can test your ovarian reserve. Ovarian reserve testing is measuring how many eggs are outside the vault. So when we think about that, we can do that with an ultrasound, and that's called an antral follicle count, where you count the follicles that are outside the vault that month, and you get an actual number. And the other is a blood test called AMH. AMH stands for anti-mullerian hormone, and it's a blood test we use in the fertility world to tell us this. The short answer is AMH is made from the cells that surround all of the eggs outside the vault. It's more of a three-month representation than just a one-month. So AMH and AFC are checking slightly different things. And I like to use both of these tests together to figure out where you are on this pathway, how many eggs may we expect you to get. That is important because that's your starting ground. And even if you're getting fewer eggs, that's okay. But you deserve to know that to be able to plan for your future and to know how this process will go. We also need to understand what's going to happen to the eggs afterwards. So before you begin a cycle or you are told your protocol, which is the combination of medications that we need in order to get this to happen, meaning allowing multiple eggs to grow, you need to have testing of your ovarian reserve. I think that is essential to determine a protocol. What are your expectations? What is your medical history? So you should have either or both an antral follicle count and an AMH before this process just begins or before you're told or ordered your medications. That should be part of the preparing for IVF stage. When you do IVF, how we get the eggs to grow, that is the protocol, as I said, because your body is really smart and it doesn't want to allow 20 eggs to grow at one time. So if your antral follicle count is 20, your body does not want to have 20 babies. We've got to come in and trick your body in order to allow that to happen. Essentially, these medications trick the brain and the ovaries because the brain typically sends out that hormone FSH and the ovary is what responds with growth. So we want to break up their relationship in order to allow this to grow. This is typically done by a combination of suppression medications and stimulation medications. The suppression medications can differ. 
So for suppression, you can use birth control pills, a medication called Lupron, ovulation blockers, progesterone, estrogen, testosterone. There's lots of choices. The stimulation meds are relatively the same. Number one, a large dose of FSH. That same hormone your body makes, this is just a synthetic version. So we're giving much higher doses of FSH than your body would have normally made. The second is going to be sometimes there's a medication, which is a combination of LH and FSH called Minipure. Minipure is actually purified from the urine of menopausal women. Yep, that's right. That's the only way we can make LH right now. And then sometimes there's some adjunct medications. Clomid is sometimes used. Letrozole could be used. You can also use human growth hormone sometimes. Everybody's a little bit different depending on your situation. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No my shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. I like to view the protocol through this lens. If I tell the brain to stop sending out FSH for a period of a few weeks, What I'm doing is exposing one month's group of eggs to zero FSH. Therefore, they are now more sensitive and ready to respond at the same rate of growth. It's like lining them all up on the starting line together. So I starve them of FSH for a few weeks. Then I come in with tons of FSH to stimulate them all to grow at the same time. That is the basic idea of the protocol. Now, when we're doing this, what is actually happening? So What is happening as you go through the process? You are going to 
typically use some suppression and then come in for a baseline ultrasound. The baseline is to confirm that the suppression worked, so nothing should be happening at that moment. Then you start your stimulation medications, again, large doses of FSH, and now you're coming in for what we call monitoring. Typically, it's an ultrasound and an estrogen blood draw every two to three days. Every clinic does this different. At Fora, we draw your blood and do your monitoring in one visit, get you in and out really early in the morning. So our monitoring is typically between 7 to 8.30 in the morning. So you come in every two to three days. We measure the size of the eggs. We check your estrogen. We make adjustments to your medications based on that. And then you're on your way. What we're really trying to decide with the monitoring is when are the eggs getting to their full potential? Typically, that's going to take about 12 to 14 days, but it depends on you. It depends on the protocol and just how your body's responding. When they get to that mature zone, then you're going to have the egg retrieval. And the egg retrieval is the process under anesthesia, so an IV anesthesia, where we go in vaginally with a needle attached to an ultrasound. You're asleep, so you don't feel it. And we puncture those follicles and we take out all the eggs. Fun fact is when the ovaries are really full and the eggs are mature, they sit at the top of the vagina. So they're really easy to access with a vaginal egg retrieval, which was a huge advance in our field. Originally, they did abdominal surgery to go after the one egg because we didn't have these medications to stimulate the whole month's group of eggs. So can you imagine doing IVF when it first started? You would just wait till your one egg gets mature and then you'd undergo surgery to go try to take that one egg out. We've come a long way and the ability to stimulate all these eggs at one time is a huge benefit in the rate of success and what we're able to accomplish. So after the egg retrieval, you'll wake up and then the magic is in the lab. A few things to be aware of. One is that your response to medications should be in the range of your original expectations with ovarian reserve. So if you had a count of 20 eggs, you should get around there. You might not get that. That might be the best ever, but you shouldn't walk out of there with six eggs mature. That's a huge discrepancy. And that's showing us the protocol is probably not making sense. I typically recommend canceling the cycle if that's happening and trying a different protocol. So during monitoring good questions, is this what we expect? Are you concerned about anything? Are we on track? I also get asked, are the side effects of medications? And everybody's different about how they respond to medications. Birth control pills, you may know how you respond. Most people do fine, maybe slight nausea or bloating. Lupron, which can be a suppressive medication, tends to cause some fatigue, headaches because it's blocking FSH. So you're feeling more profoundly kind of low because your body's not making estrogen and you're not getting estrogen, but that's how those are working. When you're taking the FSH and the LH, most people actually do fine. You may get local tenderness right from where the needle is. You may get bruising. The ovulation blocker medications, they can cause some, some redness and itching, but those are just local symptoms. Typically, as your eggs are growing and your estrogen's rising, mentally you tend to feel fine. You do get more bloated as you go through the process and you will start to get some, you know, discomfort. You will start to feel like you're retaining water and your energy may drop a little and you'll be limited in some of your exercise. So always ask, what are you limited in? I usually tell patients, 
Weight training's fine. I don't want anything bouncing. I don't want those ovaries moving around. So walking outside, you know, stretching's good, but I don't want any inversion positions with yoga. So I do want you to modify your exercise during the IVF process. And that's not because we're meanies, but that's because as the eggs are big, the ovaries are bigger, they're filled with water, essentially that follicular fluid, and they can move around in the body. And you're at risk for something called ovarian torsion or twisting of the ovaries. So we don't want that to happen. That's a surgical emergency. So that's why we restrict exercise. But most people tolerate the monitoring process really well. The more eggs you have, the more profound those symptoms are going to be. And so if you have fewer eggs, you'll typically tolerate the process even better. Now, when you get the eggs out from the retrieval, after the retrieval, you will have anesthesia and be groggy and you'll feel crampy like a period. What I warn everybody is after the retrieval, when your hormones drop from that nice high level, because each egg made estrogen and the body loves estrogen, when those estrogen levels start falling very quickly because we went and we destroyed all those follicles, that's when you might expect some of the mood changes. So if you're somebody who's gotten sensitive around your periods in the past, that's the week I want you to be really more aware of because you're going to feel you know, more down and a little more sensitive and moody. But physically, by the time your period comes around 10 days later, you'll be feeling really close to back to normal. So that week to two weeks after, you still have to abide by some of the exercise restrictions. You can't get in water because we don't want you to get a vaginal infection or pelvic infection since we just poked holes in the vagina. So you're still limited a little bit after the egg retrieval process. But then the magic's happening in the lab. So this is where when we talked about how many eggs do we get, what happens with them, what's going to go on is that every egg may not be mature. Every mature egg may not fertilize. Every fertilized egg may not make it into an embryo. Every embryo is not going to be genetically normal. And every normal embryo will not make it into a live-born baby. But let's talk about expectations. In general, of your mature eggs, approximately 75 to 80% of them are going to fertilize. So let's pretend you're 30 and we get 20 eggs. Now 16 of them have fertilized, 20 mature eggs, 16 fertilized. We're happy with that. From the 16, those eggs, those newly formed embryos, they have to grow into the stage where an embryo can implant. Because Normally, egg and sperm meet in the fallopian tube, and that embryo migrates in the fallopian tube for the next five to six days until it arrives in the uterus. And we have to replicate that in the IVF lab. So approximately 50%, this is shocking to me, 50% of your embryos are going to survive the process, even in that perfect IVF lab environment of the right pH and temperature. So now we've gone from 20 to 16 to 8. Now, if we do genetic testing on the 8, this is typically genetic testing for what we call aneuploidy. This is where that factor from the beginning, your age, plays a huge role because typically we have certain expectations based on your age. So based on your age, if we take a few cells out from the placenta, we can look at the chromosomes and decide, is it 46XX, is it 46XY? That would be normal female male karyotypes, respectively. However, what's happening 
is that as you exit inside that vault, the chromosomes are held in a perfect position and they start to break down over time. And so the older you are when you go through this process, more of the proteins have broken down holding those chromosomes in the right spot and you're more prone to genetically abnormal eggs. Therefore, you're more prone to a lower rate of genetically normal embryos. Overall, if you're trying to get pregnant naturally, a lower chance of conceiving per month because most genetically abnormal embryos do not implant. They do not cause pregnancies. However, if they do, you have a higher miscarriage rate. So a lot of genetic abnormalities are non-survivable, but some of them are, and those are the syndromes like Down syndrome or trisomy 18, 13 that we have heard of. So genetic testing for aneuploidy is called PGTA, pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy, aneuploidy's chromosome number. So we take a few cells out from the placenta segment, send those off for testing, the embryo's frozen and kept in the lab, and you'll get a number back of genetically normal. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Now, should you do genetic testing is a huge question. Let's use an example. If you're 35, you're going to have around 50% be genetically normal. So if we send off eight embryos and you're 35, well, then I'm going to have four genetically normal embryos. Now that may be made better or worse based on your life or random circumstances. Egg quality is this vague thing. Sometimes you can control it. Smoking makes your egg quality worse. However, some things you can't control. But in general, every genetically normal embryo doesn't also make it into a baby. So we usually say the live birth rate of a transfer of one embryo is going to be around 65%, which is fantastic. It's way better than nature, but it's not 100. There's a lot in this field that we don't know yet about embryo competency. So being genetically normal, that's like the lowest mark on the totem pole. Like that's a must do. But there's so many other things that must go right. Cells have to divide, organs have to form. This little embryo is still going from a clump of 300 cells into a baby. That process is not perfect by any means. So when we do this, we think about it. I usually tell patients that in your brain, you should expect about two normal embryos to make it to one baby. Not that we transfer them at the same time, they're just 65% of one. 
65% of the other, good chance that two embryos to each baby you want. So if you have four normal embryos and you want four children, I probably don't have enough embryos to grow your family. This is why we also really encourage patients, or I do, to think about your goal. So when you're preparing for IVF, I want you to think about your goal. How many kids do you want? If you want four kids and based on your age and your ovarian reserve, you potentially might need to do more than one cycle. So think about that as getting this month's group of eggs out and then getting next month's group of eggs out. So that is a good question for you with your partner, if you have a partner, to talk about with your doctor so you can set proper expectations. So if we're thinking about, okay, now I understand what IVF is. That was step number one of I'm preparing for IVF. Number two, I want to make sure I've had my ovarian reserve tested. What's my AMH or my antral follicle count? What's an expected number of eggs I may get? Number three, what is my goal? So how many kids are we wanting overall? Do we think there's a chance that'll be accomplished with one cycle? Might I need to do multiple cycles? Question four, what is my protocol? I'll even be honest, I don't always go into the details of every protocol with a patient at the beginning because I may not know. It may depend on what your egg count is. But I always think red flag if somebody can tell you your protocol with no data on you. Some clinics do use the same protocol no matter what. You might hear somebody say, typically in somebody your age, I would do XYZ. That's fine because age and average egg count tend to go together. But if somebody flat out says, this is the protocol we do here, red flag, red flag, red flag. All right. And for this week's FFS for fertility's sake Q&A, I want to go over some of the top IVF questions that I am asked, especially on our Q&As. So I see the same questions over and over. Again, you can ask your questions every Monday on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some questions will be answered there, but others will be answered here on the podcast. So let's go over some of the top ones as they pertain to IVF. Number one, can you still do IVF if you have a low egg count or a low AMH? This depends on your goals, but yes, I have had patients more than I can count now who were told by other clinics in this town that donor egg IVF was their only option, meaning you have so few eggs, it's not worth it to do the process. Now, I think that's a personal decision. If you have few eggs and we're willing to stimulate you and try to get them to grow and it's worth it to you, you should be the one making that decision. Now, if I can't get eggs to grow, that's a different story. So sometimes people who are so close to ovarian failure, there's no medications that can get the eggs to grow. So we have to intervene before we get to that timeline. But especially the younger you are, you should not let low ovarian reserve stop you. IVF is still the highest way we can get to a live birth rate, the fastest over nature. And if you have a limited time with limited ovarian reserve, you should really think about this if having a genetic child is a goal for you. There's other ways of parenthood that are lovely, so it doesn't have to be a goal for you. And donor egg IVF may make the most sense. It may be more cost-effective, get you closer to your family planning goals. It's a beautiful option. But you need to understand what you're trying to achieve. And if one person tells you flat out no, but you're still having periods or you still have eggs, or especially if you're young, please consider another opinion. And then 
as you're preparing for IVF, what are those other factors that impact sperm and egg quality? Real quick, we don't know them all. So we are about to walk into the world of science where studies are suggesting things that I think probably have bigger impacts than we acknowledge. However, we don't have the perfect study. It's really hard to study stress and diet and those factors on something like egg quality because you have to go through IVF and get the eggs out of the body in order to be able to test them. So this is a vague and hard concept. However, in general, we want to reduce the amount of toxins. So toxins in your environment, toxins in your food. I want you to go through your life and take those out. I want you to expose your body to as little inflammation as possible. Meaning I want you to eat lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains. You don't need to be gluten-free unless you have a medical reason why you need to be so. Dairy may or may not be inflammatory. I usually say if you eat dairy and you feel bloated or gassy or have GI changes afterward, probably inflammatory to you. Sugars have been shown to be inflammatory. Processed foods and processed meats are a big one. And then red meat specifically. So you don't have to be totally plant-based like me. However, I do want you to be plant-focused and I want you to limit those processed foods, refined sugars and carbohydrates, the processed meat and that red meat. Try to just decrease inflammation in your diet. Exercise is overall good, although it's not a great time to be training for a marathon, trying to lose weight, trying to be in ketosis. This is a good time to nourish the body, preparing it to do this really awesome and amazing task. Exercise is a great way for stress reduction, but I recommend more sustained exercise in this time frame. Jogging, cycling, weight training, yoga as you're preparing for the process. I don't love HIT or interval training at this stage of your life because it does cause some cortisol release and some stressful moments that specifically for some people have been shown to be a little detrimental to the body. And then sleep is so important. You need to get sleep. I think the modern world just normalizes being really busy, but your body needs sleep to rest, especially as we're about to ask it to go on this really big journey and grow all these eggs. We want it to feel like it's a good place and a lower stress environment. And then stress in general. I don't want you stressed about being stressed. However, stress can play a role in our response to medications. And so I think what's important is that you think about what coping mechanism works for you and everybody's different. Have you tried acupuncture? Have you tried therapy? Can you go for a walk and listen to the birds? Have you tried journaling? Have you tried mindfulness or meditation? I don't personally care what it is, but I want you to carve out 30 minutes for you out of your day to not check your phone or your email, not be bothered, let those hormones come down and just be a little more at peace. That does a lot for resetting our body. I think for sperm, the same food and environmental toxins apply. Smoking cigarettes and marijuana are bad for sperm. So really try to avoid those. Other big red flag is I see so many men right now on testosterone. Testosterone's like male birth control. Tells the brain to stop sending out FSH and LH, which are the hormones that make sperm. So in general, another thing before IVF begins is I always want to do a semen analysis, even on a partner who's had children in the past, or you guys have had pregnancies, just to make sure nothing's changed because it is devastating to go through IVF, get your eggs, and have no sperm to fertilize the eggs with and just be stuck there. That's a really terrible thing that nobody wants to have happen. So a semen analysis is easy enough. 
And then the last thing I want to go over are a few questions to ask your clinic just to set expectations. So one, who does the monitoring? Is it a doctor? Is it a nurse? Is it an ultrasound tech? All are fine, but they're just different protocols. They're, they're different systems. If it's not your doctor, when do you see a doctor? How do you hear if the protocol is going okay? How do you get feedback if you should cancel or keep going? When do you get your lab results and where do you get them done? Do you have to go to two different places because that takes a lot of chunk out of your day? Or does your clinic draw your blood also? And then how do you get them? Does somebody call you? Are they placed in a portal? Is it emailed? What is the way they're communicating information? And is that the way you communicate? If it's a phone call, you must answer the phone. Got it? We like to do electronically because that's the world we live in. But there are some old school clinics doing paper charts and phone calls. So you need to just ask what it is. I also think it's really important to know how you're going to hear from the lab. How are you going to get updates about your embryos? And when are you going to get them? That part is so crucial. Is it coming from the lab or the clinic? An email, a phone call? Again, how are they communicating with you? And then what is your next step? Okay, so you've done the egg retrieval and you're in the waiting game. Are you going right into a transfer? Does it depend on how many embryos you get? Are you going to follow up with your doctor? Are they going to send you a message? What is the follow-up? There's no right or wrong here, but I know that just not knowing what to do, the uncertainty, delaying time for no reason, that stuff is really frustrating. And we want to minimize that in the process. So understanding what the next steps are at any phase of this process can be really helpful as you try to navigate this world. What time is monitoring and how long will you usually be there? Like I said, hey, at 4, monitoring is between 7 to 8.30. You'll be there for about 20 minutes. We draw your blood at the same time. You'll hear from us in a portal later in the day. Boom, boom, boom. It was not hard to answer all those questions. Your clinic should be able to answer those for you. And then who does the retrieval? Have you met that doctor? Is it doctor of the day? Is it your doctor? We do a doctor of the day model, but because you meet us both during monitoring, we take care of patients together. We're a true partner practice. So we make all of our decisions aligned. So you just want to know, is that going to be a brand new face? You want to be prepared for that. And then how long should I wait after I've had a baby before you do IVF again? This is an interesting question because, you know, you already have your embryos and you're able to fast track to that next pregnancy and you're going to maintain that success rate based on your age when you got the embryos or if they're genetically normal, regardless of your age at transfer. And that's why IVF can be so beautiful for family planning, because if you're 35 and you want three kids, if we do math, you're going to be probably 40 when you're having that third one. and so. By saving embryos at 35, we are preserving your future fertility and allowing you to still have that family size you dream of, even if this process of becoming a parent started a little bit later for whatever reason. Now, I recommend that we wait an entire year from the birth month before we do a transfer. I usually like to see you a few months before then. We can start the prep work process, check your uterus, make sure everything looks good, start lining things up. But as you're preparing to kind of think about that next baby, I want to make sure the uterus is totally healed. I want to make sure your body has recovered and it's ready to take on this next challenge of nourishing another baby again. So I recommend a transfer one year from the birth month of your prior child at the soonest. But every clinic's different and somebody may say something different. 
All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed those questions. As a reminder, you can ask your own questions for fertility's sake on my Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD every Monday. So follow along and then ask yours and then listen each week to see if we can answer them. As always, thank you guys so much and hope you found this episode helpful. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.